0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. Today, I'm joined by Ambassador Luigi Ainaudi. He's the author of the book, Learning Diplomacy and Oral History. Ambassador Ainaudi is a retired US diplomat and a member of the American Academy of Diplomacy. He had a remarkable 23-year career at the State Department. He was also later Assistant Secretary General of the OAS in 2000. He was Acting Secretary General from 2004 to 2005. Ambassador Naudi has also served in the past as a Distinguished Visiting Fellow at the Institute for National Strategic Studies at the National Defense University and has been on the board of the Woodrow Wilson International Center's Brazil Institute. He is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations He has uh, navigated revolution and counter-revolution in Central America. He worked closely with uh, former Secretary Henry Kissinger when he was Secretary of State. He dealt with any number of complex challenges on human rights issues. Ambassador Inaudi's dedication to diplomacy led him to serve as a special envoy, where he played a crucial role in ending the war between Ecuador and Peru in the 1990s. His book, Learning Diplomacy and Oral History, Is a meticulously crafted account that provides a personal perspective on the pivotal conflicts shaping inter-American relations during his time in public service. I enjoyed the book very much. I encourage people to go out and buy the book. It's called Learning Diplomacy by Ambassador Luigi Ainaudi. I'm really happy to have Ambassador Ainaudi today on my podcast. So Ambassador Ainaudi, before we start, I want to talk to you about Chappaqua. You spent a couple of years of your life in Chappaqua. I grew up in Chappaqua. You didn't know this. No, I right? had no idea. I know. And so I grew up, I went to the Douglas Gravelin School, which was after your time, which was the elementary school. I went to the Robert Bell Middle School, which maybe at the time was maybe the only school. And then I went to the Horace Greeley High School, which was built in 1957. So, but you were there for several years in Chappaqua, if I'm not mistaken.
1: We went there actually to escape uh, World War II. I can still remember one of my earliest memories is my father getting binoculars to go up on the roof of our apartment building in New York with the outlines of German airplanes that he was supposed to look out for. After that experience, what we did was we moved out to Chappaqua, figuring out that it was far enough out of town so that we wouldn't get bombed. Wow, that's amazing. What was
0: the street address where you lived in Chappaqua? Do you remember? Kip Street. Street. That's amazing. I'll have to go look that up. And what? what, did you go to elementary school there? Yes,
1: I did. Through the third grade there. And it was called Horace Greeley School. Only if I remember the classes that I went to were in one of those Quonset huts. Uh, I I won't guarantee that that's an accurate memory. What years were that? This was in the 40s? Yeah, it would have been the mid-40s. Just one last
0: thing. Would it been you would have gone down the hill? At the bottom of the hill was an old brick building. Maybe that's where you maybe went to school. It was probably built in the nineteen twenties. That building.
1: Yeah, that's probably about right. Or uh, I think, as I say, I think that I went in a to a temporary construct that may have been, in part of its playground, first and second grade. I remember running out onto the field in the second grade with my chest. Out strutting, I was one of the big boys now.
0: <laughs> well, I had to start with that because you didn't know that we had this tie that we both spent part of our childhood in Chappaqua. You have had a really interesting uh, diplomatic life in public service But I wanted to first ask you, tell us a little bit about your background, Ambassador Natty. Tell us a little bit about like, how did you end up getting into diplomacy? I know how you got into diplomacy, but maybe for our listeners, you might tell a little bit, after
1: Chappaqua, where did you go? What happened to you? We went to Ithaca and uh, we stayed there until I got to be a teenager and a bit too uppity toward my father. And so I got packed off to prep school and then I went from Exeter. To Harvard, and uh, then from there to the National Student Association, all kinds of things, then back to Harvard for a PhD. In between, I was drafted into the US Army. And I emphasize that because I am a great fan of the draft, and I wish that we had it back in the United States today, because one of the things that bothers me is the loss of community having our young men all go through the military service and get to know each other, I learned an enormous amount about my country, the United States, by going through basic training with a whole bunch of crazy kids like me, except that most of them had not gone to college. I even had one kid that was um, illiterate, which was against the rules to have him, and I would sit in his bunk at night working with him, no, it was an interesting experience. It turned me into a real American, that plus, plus marrying my wife. But I guess the Cuban Revolution and our nitwitted response to it helped to drive me into international relations. I had already had a predisposition that way. Both my father and both of my grandfathers were professors, and they taught me that theories that don't fit facts are not good theories. I found that my life was interesting that didn't fit any theories. And so that's why, ultimately, I wound up thinking that my State Department career should be recorded. Um, State was interested in doing it, ADST, uh, the Association of Diplomatic Studies and Training, which does oral histories, a good collection of oral histories. They did one of me, and it was a draft that hung around forever because I couldn't get to it. Then with COVID, I got to it. The result is this book.
0: It was your COVID project.
1: That's right. So you were,
0: after getting your PhD, I think several of the formative experiences I read in your book was your time at the RAND Corporation, your involvement in this international student group where you got to know a lot of prominent Young political leaders in Latin America. I was very struck by that and some of the travels that you did around the region as part of that. And and you had some of those experiences informed your sort of your outlook. But I was hoping you might say, how did you end up at the State Department? How did you get there?
1: Well, you know, at Rand, the way anywhere else, you got to earn a living. I was finding it harder and harder to earn a living at Rand. I had a team, a good team. I put together a team of of six people. And we had to sell our time to various government agencies. And the only people who had any real money to spend for research were the military, ARPA and the Air Force in particular. Well, the only people who were really interested in the work research I wanted to do were the State Department and the NSC. And they didn't have any money. (laughs) So the net result is that I wound up being dragged more and more into the... uh, State Department network and wound up when when Kissinger became secretary of state things got shook up in the department and an opening came at the policy planning staff and that's where I wound up So you ended up with policy
0: planning and you were were you working on Latin American issues in the policy planning staff
1: Yes I was in fact I really have made my career basically that but there's a footnote or an exception to be made my father's father was an economist who uh, became the first president of Italy after the war. I had first dose of exposure to foreign affairs in being aware of the role of the United States in Europe. We're always interested in the big issues in our family. The net result is I always worked in the State Department on Latin America, but I always kept a global perspective. And I always dragged Latin America into the world scene because actually what's what's interesting is that Latin Americans themselves didn't want to be kept in a small American front yard or backyard or wherever. They also were interested in the world scene. So in a funny way, the Latin Americans and I were able to cooperate, figuring out how they and the United States fit together in ways that made more sense globally. And it also helped, of course, in my relations with secretaries of state and American presidents, none of whom were interested in Latin America, but all of whom were interested in the world. Tell me about, you then ended up leaving the function at the
0: policy planning staff and did something similar. You were sort of like, I'm not gonna say, You were sort of the planning function for the Western Hemisphere Bureau for a long period of time. Tell us a little bit about that, what you went to another part of the State Department and what was your role there?
1: I had worked on Kissinger's planning staff, but I had never felt myself as a particularly partisan person. And I've always actually believed the old saying that politics should stop at the water's edge. So I wasn't really worried when the Democrats came into office. In 1976. That's right. But of course, they couldn't have cared less. They had their people to put in. And I found myself on the verge of going out into the street. And at that point, I was saved by the career Foreign Service. Foreign Service officers who had seen me, my work, had asked me to come down and become the director of the planning office for the Regional Bureau, and I stayed there for the next 12 years and had really an enormous amount of work, but also an enormous amount of fun doing it because we had, it was the beginnings of the whole human rights experiment. Uh, We had Central America blow up. We had the Falklands War. We just had a tremendous number of issues and problems uh, that had to be dealt with, uh, including, of course, the Panama Canal treaties. You cover all these issues in very interesting detail in the
0: book, and I encourage people to go get the book, Learning Diplomacy and Oral History by Ambassador Luigi Ainaudi. Could you talk about how has the U.S., how has our engagement with the hemisphere changed from when you were at the State Department? What's different now than, say, when you were in that job in the late 70s and through the 1980s?
1: Well, I think... Several things. One is that there have not been in Latin America recently the kinds of challenges that drew headlines in the United States. In other words, the attention that was generated by the Cuban Revolution, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the Alliance for Progress, and all the rest has tended to disappear. The Central American Wars, sort of proxy wars between us and the Russians, have also came to an end. And with them, I think a lot of American interests tended to disappear. So there's been a lot less interest in the region. That's one thing. Another big change is, I think, that foreign policy generally has taken less impact in terms of American politics and policy. And the Eastern establishment has been in a steady state of decline, which has meant that our policies are much more open, more, in a sense, democratic. But also, there's been a great advance in keeping things secret, in lack of communication. I think the decline in belief in government Uh, in the United States has been quite substantial. So it's always been hard to do foreign policy. I think it's becoming even harder today.
0: So tell us about how did you end up becoming U.S. ambassador to the OAS? You'd been at the State Department for, by that time, I'm gonna say, you know, from at least 15 years.
1: How did you end up being asked to become ambassador to the OAS? Basically because the Reagan policies in Central America had come to a dead end, when President Bush, the first Bush was elected, he and Jim Baker decided that they needed to get out of there and find a way of ending our engagement in the Contra War in Nicaragua and just generally getting things on a more rational and normal basis. To do that, they chose in the first place a very able Democrat, a real Democrat, Bernie Aronson, to be the assistant secretary for the region, and then chose a bunch of other people. I was prominent among them who were known for having good connections in Latin America professionally, and therefore had a chance of being able to help reorient policy and give policy some credibility. So I got to be named ambassador in spite of the fact that I had given no political contributions to anybody in spite of the fact that I was, if anything, a Democrat in my political party registration, in which I told Baker. They said, well, they didn't care because they thought I was the best man for the job, which of course is not exactly the way things have gone in recent years.
0: What happened when you were asked to become ambassador to the OAS? What is the OAS and why is the OAS important? Many people who are listening to this podcast have maybe heard of the OAS, the Organization of American States, but may not know what it does or may have a negative perspective of the OAS. Would you
1: tell our listeners a little bit like what is the OAS and why it's an important organization? I can remember one letter I got from a constituent in Kentucky who wanted to know how I could help him since I was running the Organization of American States. And Kentucky was an American state, so why wasn't I helping him? (laughs) No, I I think that skepticism is very much okay when it comes to the OAS, just as skepticism is uh, probably okay when it comes to the UN. In other words, these are international organizations of sovereign states that today are having a very real difficulty figuring out how to make the world work. The OAS had a a couple of further bigger problems than the UN. One is that it was tied to the US with the US as the dominant power so that really a lot of the other members of the hemisphere had the tendency to fear that this was just a method uh, like a ministry of colonies, as Fidel used to say or that in any case it was based on geography, and we know that these days about the only people who pay attention to geography are soldiers, because the idea is that just about everything else has been made universal through the internet and everything else that's going on. The reason why the OES is interesting, the way any international organization is interesting, is not necessarily that they can do very much, although Yes, specific agencies like the UN's, like on the world health scene, or, the, or food. You can make an argument that they're essential part of the international system. To the extent that they work, they work best to set theories, to set up international law, and the ways in which you go after doing things. Well, we in the US have a habit of doing things our way. And figuring out that we're better than anybody else at doing them. So we're not very good at multilateralism. Multilateralism is, however, a very useful thing. In today's world, individual countries can achieve less and less by themselves. They need to cooperate with others in order to get things done. That's one of our, I think, major failings in how we engage the outside world. We tend to engage in it bilaterally. We're big guy. The other countries, compared to us, are mostly generally smaller or weaker. And therefore, we find it much easier to get along doing that without bothering to ask them too much. So places like the OAS and even the UN aren't really at the center of, of policy, even though for some things, such as creating the frameworks that can be used for development, or for international peacekeeping, they can be quite critical.
0: I agree. So talk about your time at the OAS, and then afterwards, you were ambassador to the OAS, then you became a senior executive or a senior official as an assistant secretary general, and then acting secretary general of the OAS. And then afterwards, you were asked to stay on as a special envoy as it related to the conflict between Peru and Ecuador. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. How did you get involved with the Peru and Ecuador conflict and
1: what was your role in that? The Peru-Ecuador conflict, it was the major achievement really of of my career. This is a, a war that had been going off and on, actually ever since the independence from Spain. It really didn't matter very much to anybody, even to Peru and Ecuador back in the 19th century because where it was taking place was uh, way off in remote and largely unpopulated areas but it had to do with undefined boundary lines the area in conflict which was quite wealthy in petroleum and gold and um, other raw materials and was the size of France or Italy a modern normal European country in the Andes it continued it, it Would flare up and then stop because people really didn't care that much. And the two militaries were probably the only ones who paid any attention to it. The interesting thing is that it blew up in 1994-95, right when the U.S. and some of the other countries had started a summit process and were trying to take advantage of the greater democratization in the hemisphere to make major progress in economic areas and in free trade and the like. What happened is that the Ecuadorians, who always before had fled when attacked by the superior power of the Peruvians, had secretly managed to dig in in a high Andean area. They didn't run. In fact, they fought very effectively and knocked down a fair part of the Peruvian Air Force. Things got very, very heated. I was chosen mainly because of my OAS experience. People said, oh, well, now he has patience and he knows how to deal with all of these legalistic Latins. So I was named uh, as the special envoy. I made a very strong precondition. Actually, there were two of them. I said, first I want to make sure that we're going after the root causes. we'll try to settle this damn thing. And second, I want to run an interagency group because I want to make sure our military, I want to use our military, and I want to make sure that we're all on the same page throughout. That last business about all being on the same page throughout went back to a very, very bitter experience that we had in the State Department when trying to deal with Somoza, the dictator of Nicaragua, when it was clear that it was time for him to go, we had sent a special envoy, Larry Pazulo, a very distinguished career diplomat, but we had him and Bill Bowdler also, another diplomat, but we never gave them the support and the authority to be able to really negotiate uh, effectively. In effect, we as one of my colleagues said, when you touch a king, you better kill him. And what we did was we sent a man to deal with samosa armed with a fly swatter. I was very aware that uh, if I was gonna be able to succeed, I needed to be sure that I would have support when the time came. It took three years, and it took the enormous amount of work I had uh, as an ally, um, At the start, General McCaffrey, who was a four-star American military hero. My own experience in the military had made me not anti-military the way so many people are in certain parts of our civilian life. We were able to work very hard and very well together, and we finally managed to solve the problem. What was interesting is that it looks like a small problem far away and nobody really cared much, because nobody really knows. As the White House calmed down, as soon as it was clear to them, we were not going to get American soldiers killed somewhere into the in the Andes. It was a time following Somalia where, I think, a headline saying that would not have been very good for the president. So we were able to achieve a major success. In fact, the 25th anniversary of the peace between Peru and Ecuador was two weeks ago, October 26. I was invited down to help join the two presidents in celebrating it. I wasn't able to go for health reasons, but there is no doubt that it was very successful. If you give me a moment to say something about how that happened that matters today uh, as we look at today's very disturbing international scene whether you're talking about Ukraine and Russia or Israel-Hamas. I'm going to talk about how it worked in Peru, Ecuador, and your imagination will have to fill in. The first rule here is very simply that it is the warring parties that are the ones who will have to live with the results of their war and of the peace, and the imposition of the peace from the outside even if somebody could come in and impose it would not last the parties must be brought to the forefront of the negotiations that are needed and that are going to be needed to achieve some sort of a settlement now in this the role of third parties will be critical there were four different elements of this that showed up in Peru Ecuador the first is military. You have to stop the fighting, you have to separate the forces, and then you have to keep the ceasefire real, uh, keep them from starting up again. In Peru, Ecuador, just to give you the example, in this remote high altitude area under jungle canopy, we sent in U.S., Argentine, Brazilian, and Chilean observers a force made up of the four nations to separate the forces they found 3000 ecuadorian special forces and 2000 peruvian special forces mixed up at about 60 units each before below above behind around each other not knowing where each other were and in a position where even to get out they'd have to fight their way out it was an appalling situation And you knew you had to have the military involved and do it profession, etc. Then, once you achieve a ceasefire of some sort, keep things on, then comes in the diplomatic side. And you have to show the patience to listen deeply and carefully to the two sides so that you can understand what their desires are and what their red lines are. Clearly, since they're fighting over something as bitterly as this, there are some things that one or the other is going to win and the other one is going to lose. So you have to encourage the development of elements that each side could claim as a victory and therefore will offset those on which they will not get what they want. In effect, Ecuador got maritime treaties and security that offset the fact that it did not get the land that it had been fighting for. And then the other role of the outsider is to be willing, if asked, to decide those points on which the parties cannot reach agreement. And this was fascinating because we got to the point where the two parties wanted to make peace, but they still could not agree on the land. But they agreed to ask us, the guarantors, the outside party, to tell them how to settle the land issue and our presidents got together and they agreed on a certain formula. We agreed on getting the Peruvians to accept it, Congresses to ratify it, sight unseen, and the solution was arrived at. Then there was the economic issue. Of course, you need resources as incentives to rebuild or develop. In all this, The key glue on how to deal with it is to use the law and the international community from the rules engagement of the military and the observers to the principles guiding how you get to peace and the power networks uh, around the world to participate to guarantee the results of the peace and not leave it just simply as an orphan solution that will not last. And I'm going to give you one specific example just to end this. The issue is sovereignty. Sovereignty is our lifeblood. It is the thing that we all aspire for. We want to be sovereign, whether it's the old American revolution, I say, don't tread on me or just leave me alone. The problem is that in today's world, that will not work. We are too Interdependent, too mixed up. We need to cooperate with others just to be able to defend ourselves. So you need to be able to deal with sovereignty in new ways. And in the case of Peru, Ecuador, the Ecuadorians had actually buried their dead where they were fighting in soil that was clearly going to be Peruvian. That was obviously a deal killer, because you're not going to make a deal, ask the Ecuadorian military to dig up its fighters and bring them home. You've got to find a way to honor them. When, at the last minute, things were breaking down, precisely because of that simple thought, I had a simple, frustrated inspiration. I took a matchbox out of my Pocket. I used to smoke like a Turk back in those days, and threw it on the negotiating table, and I said, look at this. This is the size of what we're talking about, of where they're buried in that unknown distant jungle. For God's sakes, let's figure out a way to deal with it. And the way that we figured out to deal with it was very simple. The land, that land was going to be sovereign Peruvian territory. But it was going to be Ecuadorian property, subject to a couple of conditions. It couldn't be used for military purposes. Peru could not expropriate it. Ecuador couldn't sell it. And on that basis, we got the peace, because on that basis, Ecuador's military was able to keep the dignity of its dead uh, and the sacred recognition of the blood that they had shed. The example here is that sovereignty cannot be seen as a simple, absolute black and white in today's world. We have to learn, work around it to find solutions. And the way you do that, above all, is to show some respect and patience for the people involved to listen and to take the time and to participate and contribute. Sorry, I got a little bit wound up there. That's okay, okay, Ambassador. That's great. Let
0: me ask you a related question. There is, as we're doing this podcast, increasing tension between Guyana and Venezuela. What If you were still at the OAS or you were asked by the State Department to play a role in trying to broker some kind of agreement between Venezuela and
1: Guyana, what would you be doing about that? Well in the first place, I think if I were at the State Department, I would check with the OAS and if I were at the OAS I would say go check with the State Department and see if they have a stomach for getting involved. The point is that they have two very different sort of roles to play, the OAS to help to set the framework, the United States to help provide some of the diplomatic and economic and as the technical, support and oomph for the process. The key thing there would be, a first further question would be, what are the attitudes of the Venezuelan and Guyanese governments? Are they willing to accept help and uh, ask for help? Certainly in the case of the OAS, the OAS will not move unless both governments ask for help. I think it's rather unlikely at this point that Venezuela, which has a fraught relationship with the OAS, as well as with the United States, would be very willing to engage the OAS. And I'm not sure where Guyana stands at this point. If I were asked by the United States or by one of the two countries, as actually I was but 15 years ago, I would say, well, the first thing to look at is what is your domestic situation and uh, who's gonna be there to back us when we uh, sit down to actually trying to find some kind of a solution. As I suggested in terms of the pericular thing, or if you look at what's happening elsewhere in the bigger disputes, these things take time and commitment and patience and a lot of effort. And you can't from the outside start Dictating or thinking that you have found the solution, well, let's give them Crimea and uh, get back the Donbas, or let's let's accept this part of the West Bank and not that. Those decisions are basically for the parties to make. In the case of Venezuela and Guyana, the question is the definition of their territorial waters, where wells could be dug. And one would need to also obviously involve the private companies that are, uh, that are involved. But the whole point is that is itself a study that has to be undertaken very carefully by anybody who would try to solve this dispute. So Ambassador,
0: this is great. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I really enjoyed your book, Learning Diplomacy by Ambassador Luigi Inaudi. Thanks for your public service. I found the book fascinating. I found this conversation really interesting. I know my listeners will too. Thanks for doing this, and I hope to see you in
1: person soon. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
0: If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020,